Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your co-host, Neil Chatterjee, and I'm delighted to be joined once again by my co-host, Brienne. Brienne, how you doing? Hey, Neil. I'm great. Great to hear from you and great to be on the podcast again. We've got a fun guest this week. I'm really excited about this conversation. Nick Deulius is the CEO of CNX Resources. CNX Resources may not seem like a household name to our listeners, but this is a company that's actually been around since the Lincoln administration. And you certainly should be knowing about them now because Nick is all over the place. Uh, as recently as a few years back, my understanding is he didn't even know how to engage with social media. Now he's all over it. He's on Twitter. He's on other platforms. He's got his own podcast that uh, I'm assuming is more entertaining than this one. Uh, he's authored a book and, and is really uh, doing some fascinating things in the space. Nick, thank you so much for joining us here on the Plugged In Podcast. Hey, Neil, Brianne, thank you for having me. It's great to, to be here. Well, let's start off. Just uh, give our listeners a little bit of background, uh, you know, of the company's origins, of how you guys kind of evolved to where you are today and, uh, and, the, and the work you're involved with. Well, you mentioned, Neil, that our inception, the genesis of the company goes back to, to when Lincoln was in the White House, which is true. It's the, the oldest public company by far from Western Pennsylvania. We're, we're Pittsburgh-based. And through that history of 150-plus years, coming up on 160 now, uh, the, the theme, I think, has been one of innovation. And innovation in the energy space originally you know, consolidated as a, a coal mining entity all across Appalachia. And through the years, innovating technology with respect to extracting coal, like longwall technology, which the company played a, a leading role in, and then evolving into uh, the coal bed methane field, which was a, a key chapter in the company's evolution, because what it did there was sort of what I would call or what many reference is sustainable development, but before sustainable development was a, a catchphrase that anybody was speaking of. So back in the early 80s, late 80s, we were mining uh, metallurgical coal for steel making in one of the gaseous coal seams in the world in Western Virginia. And we became very efficient and very proficient at developing technology to extract the enemy of the coal miner at the time, which was methane, from the coal seam before mining operations uh, went through that specific area. And at some point in that evolution of that technology, we sort of came to the conclusion of instead of one saleable product of metallurgical coal, why not capture this methane instead of flaring or venting it and turn that into a business? So we developed the techniques, capitalized the pipeline infrastructure, the gathering infrastructure to, to process and transport it. And that really was the start of how we became ultimately a pure play natural gas and pipeline midstream company, which we are today. It started as a mechanism to help coal miners and wound up turning into, through innovation, a whole nother revenue opportunity. It's really interesting. It's just disruptive technology and evolution, innovation at play. And, and that sort of set us up really well, fortuitously, so to speak, um, for that next chapter, which was when we evolved from coal bed methane and added to it uh, the shale development with the Marcellus and the Utica, because in the 2005 to 2010 timeframe, as you know, uh, the shale revolution through many of the same types of attributes of disruptive technology with horizontal drilling and completions technology, innovation, uh, completely changed the space of not just the natural gas space and not just the energy space, but frankly, you know, economies from regions to nations to global. And so today, what, you know, what are you guys focused on? You know, you're in a region of the country 
that is sort of at the epicenter of the energy transition. You've got communities in which you operate that are seeing benefits and challenges from that transition. We're seeing the political and policy landscape around energy be pressured by everything from the crisis in Ukraine to pressures regarding ESG. Talk a little bit about some of the opportunities and obstacles your company is facing today. Well, I'm going to start to unpack a lot of the themes that you just hit on. You stop me uh, when I'm running too long. But you know, the, um, the current company in its current state consists basically of, of Marcellus Utica shale production, coal bed methane production, and the natural gas space. And we do own and operate our own midstream gathering and processing infrastructure, which is unique within Appalachia. And we're exclusively focused in the Appalachian Basin. So that's sort of what we do. I have read you guys don't consider yourselves to be an upstream or midstream or EMP company that you really consider yourselves to be in the free cash flow manufacturer business. Can you explain that a little bit? Neil, if you ever want a career in our investor relations department, you got one. We do um, strive right to obviously embark on an endeavor that matters for society. Certainly the development of affordable, reliable energy fits that to a bill. And we can talk about that. And then we want to have some sort of sustainable, resilient, competitive advantage, something that's not going to go away or change with different cycles of the commodity curve. And that is our low-cost integrated position of where we operate. We're the low-cost producer in this space, which then, as you said, it puts us in a position to really, at the end of the day, be a manufacturer of free cash flow. And when I say free cash flow, I'm talking about legitimate, true free cash flow. All the cash in minus all the cash out, is it positive or not? not some sort of adjusted magical number. And then when we're generating and manufacturing that free cash flow, we want to be very astute capital allocators. We want to invest that free cash flow in the right places at the right time. Sometimes that's our people. Our all-in average compensation for our employees, excluding CEO, is over $160,000 a year. That's far in excess of the next closest competitor of any industry on the public company space in, in Western Pennsylvania. We invest in our communities. And we've got the CNX Foundation uh, that's investing tens of millions of dollars across communities. And, and we're targeting those partners, those entities that basically get overlooked by the mainstream nonprofits, the mainstream institutions that are out there, um, the ones that are basically really going after challenging problems. So success is not always going to be a guarantee with where we invest regionally. And we accept that going in. And then we want to return to shareholder capital component of what we do that can be via dividend or buybacks. Right now, we're focused on repurchasing our shares because we feel that they're discounted significantly compared to, to fair value. So that's, that's the business model. Now, when you look at the sort of consequences, the positive follow-on consequences of that type of business model in this type of an industry in a region like Appalachia, like West Virginia, Eastern Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, Western Virginia, some really positive consequences are brought to bear. And you sort of touched upon those in your question. Um, one is just thinking through uh, what happens to the widget, which is the methane molecule that we manufacture each day. And the way we think about it, an individual, if you have three different widgets, three different molecules of methane that we generate today, they could end up in three very different locations or end uses for society. One can stay in region, and when I say in region, that can be everything from power generation to home heating, but also increasingly to build and resurrect, frankly, manufacturing in Appalachia. So I'm born and raised from Pittsburgh. Uh, I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s at a time when it was economically devastated 
I saw what it did to communities and to my neighbors and to my friends' families and, and my family. And my dad was a steel worker, everybody else. And what you saw with the shale revolution and the resurgence of the energy space, a la natural gas in Appalachia, is now things like petrochemical industries coming to this region, such as shells, which is being built right outside of uh, Pittsburgh near the airport. And it's resurrecting the middle class because you're resurrecting manufacturing, which requires those family sustaining work uh, jobs that are paying family sustaining wages from workers, many instances that don't need a college degree. Um, sometimes that methane molecule doesn't stay in region. Sometimes, right, it wants to go to demand centers across the entire United States or North America. And this gets into sort of the reestablishment, the revitalization of infrastructure like pipelines, et cetera, to bring that molecule from the low cost basin of Appalachia to Boston, to the Southeast United States, to Ontario, Western Ontario, et cetera. And they're retooling their entire economies to take advantage of this plentiful, reliable resource of energy that's now been you know, discovered and has an inventory depth of decades. And then sometimes that molecule of methane is going completely offshore to literally change lives, geopolitics, all of the above across the globe. You mentioned Ukraine. When you look at Western Europe, Poland, Germany, you look at Japan with respect to its energy security versus China. You look at the developing world with India, sub-Saharan Africa with millions, if not you know, a couple billion people that do not have access to reliable, affordable electricity and what that means to them, what their lives are like because of that and how this, what we're doing here in this region can change all those things. Um, it is mind boggling with respect to the positive consequences or as my environmentalist friends like to say the, the positive externalities of what Appalachian Shale is doing for the world. Let's talk about that a little bit because, you know, you, you're noted for being kind of an outspoken advocate, not just for your company, as I mentioned in the in intro, uh, but also for the industry. You know, I'm old enough to remember when the Obama administration embraced natural gas as a bridge fuel, but then steadily over the course of time, I think maybe when there was a recognition amongst some on the political left that natural gas might not be a bridge to the future, but might actually be the future, that, you know, the, the politics towards natural gas and the narrative here in the U.S. started to shift. Do you think this absolute humanitarian tragedy that's taking place in Ukraine, which is really predicated on Russian gas dominance over Europe, do you think that will resurrect the brand of natural gas? domestically, or do you still see headwinds from folks who uh, just want to keep it in the ground? Excellent question. Again, a, a lot there to unpack. Let, let me walk through some of this. So there was this assumption that natural gas would basically play the role of bridge. Uh, the future wasn't natural gas's future. It was more of things like renewables. And lo and behold, not you know because of the, the desire of policymakers, but because of American ingenuity, technology, disruptive technology itself, you see the shale revolution, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a plentiful supply of natural gas for decades to come at very low cost on, on a replicable basis comes out, out of nowhere. And, and not because of government, but in spite, in many instances, of government. So that basically changed the entire game board of what certain policymakers were envisioning when it came to our energy future. So then what you saw, as you said, was this shift from, well, it's a necessary piece of the puzzle and a bridge to something that more manifested in the form of a zero carbon economy, code red for humanity, all those, those catchphrases that you hear. And what you saw in the manifestation 
of furthering out, following through on those policies and those views of how energy should work is exactly, exactly what is happening in Western Europe and with Ukraine and with Russia today. So what you saw was a couple of sort of sequential steps, right? We were going to basically divest, shut down idle things like natural gas. So Europe shutters its natural gas fields. We are going to retire coal, nuclear, natural gas power plants. We're going to run to and embrace at scale, very large scales, wind and solar, where there's obvious challenges to doing so. And then when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine or demand is too high, what inevitably happened was good old math and physics taking hold once again, because they're undefeated. Physics and math are undefeated in our world. And when the demand got high and the wind and solar weren't able to deliver at scale or because of conditions, the plug became Russian natural gas. So these, these states and nations within Europe basically were talking one thing when it came to energy policy and the optics, but they were doing something quite different to make the math equation work, which was, I need Russian natural gas molecules. Someone like Vladimir Putin, he understands all this, and he looks at that and he says, well, this is very fortuitous for me because now they're basically, these, these Western democracies are creating energy scarcity. They're taking energy security, trading it for energy insecurity. And that is improving not just the pricing of my product, but it's creating geopolitical leverage for me. And I'm going to use that geopolitical leverage and I'll be able to take um, certain actions and do things that normally I wouldn't even contemplate. And that is why we're ending up in the situation that we're in with Ukraine. Our current you know, situation, whether it's the price of energy or inflation or Putin, those are all symptoms. Some of them are first derivative symptoms. Some of them are second derivative symptoms or consequences of the underlying manifestation of embracing some of these policies that simply weren't thought through. I completely agree. So you've given us a ton of insight so far. I feel like I've learned a lot just in the last couple minutes, uh, you know, being fairly new to this space. Uh, or reporting in this space, I should say. Um, and so what do you feel like are some of the things that your company is doing right now that you're most excited about? Well, Brianne, this sort of space, as I go back to that original why, and why are we here? What is the purpose of what we're doing on behalf of society, ownership, shareholders, that type of thing? It's, it's a huge why, right? It's, it's basically delivering when you think about a quality of life from this region, all the way out to the globe, whether it's developed or developing world. And you start looking toward the prospects of the future. I think there's a couple of really exciting, um, motivational, impactful things that are out there. I'll start with advocacy. A lot of what we're talking about here with respect to policy and with respect to the science of energy, right? the, the economics and science of energy, um, need to be better understood, not just by policymakers, but frankly, by the general public, by a lot of end users of energy, which is everyone, right? So it doesn't matter if you're in the consumer products business and manufacturing and old line economies and new line tech economies, doesn't really matter. Um, it all basically in some way, shape or form is going to hinge off of energy. Getting a recognition and a realization of how things actually work versus you know, the, the optics or, or maybe the, uh, the way things are, are viewed or perceived. I think that's a huge issue. And that's something in the industry, really, unfortunately, it is not being filled uh, in terms of that, that void being filled by leadership in the industry. So I'm hoping that not only can we advocate, but we can do so in a way we're encouraging others to start speaking up on behalf of those things um, to make sure the policy is informed or better informed uh, versus where it might end up uh, otherwise. 
Another area, I think, is with respect to technology development. You know, we are basically, as I said, a high-tech industry. This is disruptive technology in action. People typically don't think of something like natural gas or pipeline industries or, or the processing of that product is, is high-tech. They think of it more as a traditional industry, and it has a traditional legacy. But with respect to what's driving it today, it is the most high-tech type of an industry or industries that you will find out there. And nothing stands still when it comes to that. So a lot of our attention and a lot of our focus recently has been on developing, demonstrating, deploying new technologies that do a couple of things. One would be either making the extraction process, delivery process of our product lower cost, more efficient, um, less, less emission footprint, those types of, of things, which are all basically productivity adders, right? And, and profitability adders. The other side of this is looking at technologies to develop and demonstrate that basically open up the demand for natural gas into all kinds of new markets. So of course there's power generation and there's home heating and there's liquefied natural gas export, but then there's all these other industries that are going to pivot off of natural gas as a feedstock, whether it's fertilizers and agriculture, petrochemicals, transportation with respect to CNG and LNG, I think is going to be a huge area of development um, for the industry moving forward. So we're looking at those areas as well. And I think those are the two big sort of themes. There's advocacy and, and getting the informed views, the math, the physics out there. Two is basically you know, finding ways to either make this industry and ourselves more efficient um, or you know, act, adding to the incremental demand growth that we're seeing globally for our product, our widget, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And I think you do a really good job of connecting, you know, I think this is, which is really important, connecting not only the work you guys do, but explaining why it matters. I think that is a critical part of understanding this space. Um, And that's kind of, it's lost on a lot of people, you know, unless you can, you can tell them a bunch of information, but unless you tell them how it affects them or why it's important, you know, um, I, I just feel like it adds a big, there's a lot big value out there. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Another big example of this too, in terms of advocacy and, and getting sort of an understanding out there, um, people at first, when, when, when you advocate for things might want to paint you as a certain view or, or persuasion politically, ideologically, whatever the case might be. But if you go back to, to math and science, things become much more objective in terms of, of how you're looking at things. And a great example of this is the concept of zero carbon. Uh, there's been lots of discussion out there about a zero carbon economy, zero carbon industry, zero carbon sources of, of, of energy. And in the end, when you look at the CO2 footprint, and we should care about the cradle to grave CO2 footprint of any endeavor, not, it doesn't matter where the CO2 is being emitted from, because from an atmosphere's, atmospheric perspective, CO2 is CO2. When you look at something like wind and solar, currently, most people view them as zero CO2 sources of energy or electricity which is false. They have tremendous carbon and CO2 footprints, but what's happening is we're ignoring effectively the upstream CO2 footprint tied to the mining of materials for wind turbines and solar panels, the transportation of those materials on carbon, the processing to purify those materials that's carbon-based, the manufacturing of the blades and the panels in carbon-fueled factories in places like China, the transportation of those components to the United States on carbon, and then you know the clearing of pads and, and concrete and steel for the wind turbine or for the, the solar farm, all the transmission lines that need to be run from each wind turbine or solar panel farm. Those things in cumulative upstream and downstream pieces 
pieces of it are quite large. And in my view, the CO2 footprint from cradle to grave life cycle CO2 footprint of wind or solar at scale is much larger than that of something like natural gas from a combined cycle power plant. But yet the optics and the common perception today is that natural gas has a tremendous CO2 footprint compared to wind and solar because only scopes one and two emissions are being counted. Everybody's ignoring the scope three emissions of CO2, which would account for all the upstream and downstream um, emissions with respect to those. Can you talk to us a little bit about ESG? We had a congressman. Andy Barr on an earlier episode of the podcast, and he really kind of broke down the implications for companies, particularly in the energy industry, as ESG comes into greater focus. You've been kind of a leader in the space and have sort of taken an innovative approach to ESG. Uh, can, can you tell our listeners a little bit uh, about your thinking in this regard? Sure. And as you said, it's a timely topic, of course, and, and we have uh, a lot to, to say that we've said on it. Um, it really does depend on the details. So you know, ESG could stand for the environmental social governance side of things that everybody sort of uh, relates to when they hear that. And it could also um, relate to enabling stakeholder graft as some respond to it when it's done poorly. I wrote a piece uh, on my website, nickdeolius.com, and I talk about this in my book, Precipice, um, where there's a good, bad, and ugly component to ESG investing. So the good side of it, when done right, um, if you look at metrics that drive safety, um, when you look at metrics that drive transparency, metrics that drive efficiencies, and many of those would be emissions-based, then those things are going to correlate to the low-cost producer, the best in breed, the most efficient. That's been true for all kinds of industries over, over decades of history. So there is legitimacy to ESG investing when done right. Um, two, and of course, we, we feel that we, we do it the right way. Two, um, unfortunately, right, there is a bad side of ESG because what many want to do um, in the capital markets, sometimes in media, uh, sometimes with respect to academia, they want to try to boil it down to a very simple screening criteria, spreadsheet-based operation, and you're never going to be able to truly vet and rank ESG performance by running it from a spreadsheet in a cushy office far afield from the specific company activity or location. It takes a lot of sweat, a lot of understanding, a lot of work to get to the metrics that matter. And they're going to vary from industry to industry and perhaps even from company to company. So that's why you see a lot of these entities and indices that rank different players in different industries. You put these rankings side by side, you'll have a certain electric vehicle manufacturer rank first on one person or one entity's list on ESG sort of nirvana, but then the other entity ranks them last, the same company dead last. Why? Because when you're running things off of spreadsheets and you're trying to normalize everything into a simple equation, basically it either becomes very subjective or very random with respect to how you rank them. It takes an awful lot of, of work. It's not that simple. And then there's an ugly side of ESG investing. And the ugly side um, that I talk about, there's examples of this, but you see it where the decision-making of companies and industries start to chase that ESG label, and they're not thinking through either what their mission is or where their true risk is with respect to their, their going concern. And the biggest example of this is Pacific Gas and Electric, which is an example I know that you're aware of, Neil, where for years, right, probably for decades, whether it was the Public Utilities Commission whether it was just shareholders, stakeholders in California, they started to divert basically capital investment 
from good old fashioned boring maintenance and sort of security reliability of supply and transmission lines and into very ESG friendly things like electric vehicle charging stations, renewable power, all these things. And what happened was the reliability and the maintenance state of that grid was steadily degraded over time. And lo and behold, it got windy one day in Northern California and a 90 plus year old hook on a transmission line broke. And when it busted, right, the line fell to the ground, sparked a fire and, and basically devastation ensued to the point where the, the company was bankrupted and people lost their lives and homes were destroyed and everything in between. So ESG, as I said, there's a good way of going about it. It's not easy if you want to take that good path. There's a bad side to it where everybody's trying to you know, market it as the next best thing and easy to screen and easy to rank, uh, which is a big mistake. And there's an ugly side to it, whether it's Pacific Gas and Electric in California, uh, what we saw in Texas, that's another example with what happened uh, a winter ago, where you saw all this investment in wind generation in far west Texas that basically was funded by tax abatements that hurt school districts in some of the poorest counties in West Texas. And basically there's transmission lines running all the way across the state, which is a big state, of course, to places like Houston and Dallas. And it got cold, weatherization wasn't being invested in with things like the natural gas side of the grid. You had these long transmission lines and unreliable wind because of what the conditions might be at that point in time. And you had the Texas freeze ensue. And then you mentioned um, Boston and LNG, uh, earlier when we were chatting, it's another, it's a third example right here in our nation where because of policy, as crazy as this sounds, and it is indeed insane and very frustrating, we cannot develop a supply chain of about 400 miles to build a pipe from Pennsylvania to Boston City Gate to allow Pennsylvanians to provide reliable, affordable power and energy needs to Bostonians. And instead, in the interest of, again, zero carbon, climate change policies, et cetera, we prohibit that, but instead what they end up doing, similar to what Western Europe did, is they've traded that off for a 4,000 plus mile supply chain to take Russian LNG. It's ridiculous, but there you are. It's one of the most frustrating things I saw during my tenure at FERC. Here, we've got this abundant, affordable domestic supply of energy. And because we can't get the infrastructure cited to get it to where the demand is, you've got Russian tankers pulling into Boston Harbor to meet U.S. domestic energy demands. And uh, it's incredibly frustrating. And what I have found, and would love your opinion on this, is that, look, there's a lot of exciting things that can come about from the energy transition. But we can't skip the transition part of the transition. And gas is going to be an important part of that transition. What are you seeing today, you know, in the in the policy sphere that is impacting your business? And, you know, uh, do you think the situation in Ukraine has maybe reoriented policymakers in the U.S. to focus a little bit more on energy security and reliability and balance that with our decarbonization goals instead of focusing solely on decarbonization? Well, great question, Neil. And I know we're, we're running short on time. I think today there's three big avenues of attack that you see on things like the natural gas side of the, the energy equation. One is the traditional aims of, of excessive regulation that looks to increase the cost to reduce the supply of natural gas. That's been around for some time and, and that continues, but industry's become very, I think, very good at, at managing that. The second is sort of what we're talking about here, which is looking to attack the, the avenues to fill demand, the pipeline infrastructure, et cetera, 
through entities, unfortunately, like FERC or other types of, of policies or administrative offices, it basically stops the ability to get the molecule from where it's produced or where it should be produced from an efficiency perspective to demand centers like a Boston, like a Southeast United States. I think that will continue. Uh, that's a problem that worries me. The third area is basically starving the industry to access to capital. This can be in the form of Federal Reserve climate stress tests, SEC disclosure rules with re respect to, to climate and, and scope one through three emissions, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's just starting to ramp up. That's also a bit disturbing because what you're ending up with is a controlled economy versus a free economy. And in the end, has Ukraine uh, changed things to your, your last question to close? I think it's exposed. It's definitely exposed the flaws in the thinking and the logic. Whether exposure of those flaws in thinking changes the policies, that remains to be seen. I know what I'm rooting for. Well, Nick, thank you for a fantastic interview and for joining us here on the Plugged In Podcast. Uh, our listeners know we like to close these episodes uh, with something fun and light about our guests. I mentioned in the intro uh, that you are an author and recently uh, put out a book. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about it and where they can get it. Sure. Uh, I did write a book. Its title is Precipice, The Left's Campaign to Destroy America. And what it goes through and discusses is a lot of the themes that we hit on over the past half hour or so. It's basically, I think, a celebration of achievers, of doers, uh, those that are toiling in the free enterprise system and, and taking risks under capitalism and sort of protecting and, and heightening individual rights, all those great things that our, our republic was based upon. And it's also a bit of a warning I think, a uh, statement with respect to some of the dangers out there, specifically uh, the value appropriators and how the, that group is growing over time, whether it's the bureaucratic class or whether it's a whole bunch of other endeavors that are basically looking to consume, appropriate the value that those creators of value and free enterprise are, are manufacturing. So um, that's sort of the premise of the book. The net proceeds are going to be donated to the CNX Foundation's Mentorship Academy, uh, what the Mentorship Academy is, it's an effort that basically takes seniors in high school um, from this region of Western Pennsylvania, and we're looking at urban and rural underserved school districts, and we're looking for individual students who do not desire to go to college immediately after high school, but they want a career, they want to start a profession, and they want to earn family-sustaining wages. So we, we open their eyes to the different opportunities in manufacturing and the building trades and energy industries in this region and mentor them through everything from resume development to how to interview to basically just developing more self-confidence in how they go about their career and professional endeavors. So it goes to a good cause. I, I hope you guys will find it an interesting read. And again, the title's Precipice. If you want to give it a, an order and a read, I'd, I'd be really appreciative of doing so. Well, that is uh, definitely a good cause indeed. And I mean, you're literally changing lives. Uh, thank you for doing that. Thank you for the great interview and the work that you do. And I uh, really appreciate you joining the Plugged In Podcast. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Brian. Thanks again for listening to Season 2 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.